All right, let me read the passage for you. We'll look at the entire chapter, chapter 13. Paul writes here, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So just, uh, again, a recap to see where we've been so we can know where we're going. Um, This chapter, being the 13th chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, comes between chapters 12 and 14. Right, as I like to point out, that's why you guys pay me the big dollars to tell you that 13 comes between 12 and 14. And 12 through 14 is one whole unit. It's a whole unit that deals with the issue of spiritual gifts and their operation in the church. And it's part of an even slightly larger section that includes chapter 11 that talks about just how the Corinthians ought to conduct themselves in the public gathering of worship. And of course, it also is part of just the second half of 1 Corinthians in which Paul is addressing issues that the Corinthians have raised to him. They wrote him a letter with a bunch of questions, and Paul is dealing with them, which is why you see in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. In chapter 7, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Chapter 8, now concerning things offered to idols. He's just sort of like ticking off the list one by one the issues that they have raised with him, and he's dealing with them. And if you remember, uh, I don't know when I said this, probably a few times back, you can almost tell what fires the Apostle Paul up by how much time he spends on a topic. Right? So like head coverings, he spends half a chapter. The Lord's Supper, as important as the Lord's Supper is, he spends half a chapter. How they were using their spiritual gifts in the church and what that reflected on how they worshipped in the church, he spends three whole chapters so this really fired them up. So did divisions in the church. So did their, their flirtations with idolatry and meat offered to idols. So he spends a lot of time focusing on these problems. Now, if you remember, um, when we started this section, I gave you a little bit of a road map to this uh, passage here, 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts. 
And the problem, you see, the, he doesn't talk about the problem until you get to chapter 14, verse 26 and following, where he talks about how in their worship services, the Corinthians were a chaotic mess. They were exercising their gifts all over the place, out of order, uh, without any concern for the edification of the body, without any concern for the betterment of the church. And Paul rebukes them for that and tells them they need to uh, be a church that works in order because God is not the author of confusion, verse 33 of chapter 14, but of peace. So their church services were confusion because of the way they were exercising their gifts, but he says God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace, a God of order. He's the one who brings order out of the chaos. So he's going to rebuke them for that. But he lays the foundation because if you remember when we started this, chapter 12, verse 1 talks about how I do not want you to be ignorant. So he needs to instruct them on the use of spiritual gifts, what they're, where, they're, where they're from, what their uses are for, and what the purpose of spiritual gifts are. So he spends the first half of chapter 12 laying a theological foundation for spiritual gifts. And the key verses in that section are in verse 7 and verse 11, where he says that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So the Spirit... The one Holy Spirit gives each member in the church, each member in the body of Christ, he gives that person a gift. And that gift is for the profit of all. That gift is meant to be used to better the church, to the edification of the church. And then you look at verse 11, he says, It is one and the same Spirit who works all of these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So the, what was going on in Corinth was they were emphasizing the gift of tongues primarily, and then prophecy, and then sort of looking down on all the other, quote-unquote, lesser gifts. But Paul gives a list of gifts here in chapter uh, in 12, verses 8 through 11, or 8 through 10, and then he says in verse 11, look, all of these gifts, it is the same Holy Spirit who gives the gift of tongues to one, and gives the gift of helps or administration to another. It's the same Spirit. So you cannot look down on the person who has a quote-unquote lesser gift because the Spirit gave that person that gift. And the Spirit distributes to each one as He wills. Not as that individual wills, but as the Spirit decides. So then in the second half, or the passage we looked at last time, Paul illustrates this theological principle by showing how there's the unity in the body with the diversity of the gifts by showing how the church is like a body. The body is a unity, but you have the many members of the body, and each member of your body has a function to perform if the body is going to function well. And if you have parts of your body that are either non-functional or dysfunctional, then that, to that extent, the body is not operating as it should. So he's like, you're all parts of the body. And the key verses there are verse 18, where we see here how God has set... The members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. So if you're a hand or an eye, you cannot turn to an ear or the foot and say, you're not part of the body. And the ear and the foot can't say, because I'm not an eye or a hand, I'm not part of the body. God has put you in the body. God has gifted you and put you in the body as he wills for his purposes, and it is for the benefit of the church. So then he ends that section Again, by showing you how uh, you are all spirit-baptized 
members of the body set in the body of Christ by God. And then he says in verses 29 and 30, he's like, look, not all our apostles, not all our prophets, not all speak tongues, not all have gifts of healings, gifts of miracles, not all um, interpret all these things. Look, in other words, you're not all the same. The body of Christ is united, but it is not uniform. It is not the same. And then in verse 31, where he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. I made the argument last time that it might be better served to see that as more of a rebuke, saying you are earnestly desiring the best gifts. And then he says, look, I will show you a more excellent way. And that is the way of love. That brings us to our passage this morning. And the theme that really holds this passage together, chapter 13, is that love is the atmosphere in which the spiritual gifts are to operate. We exercise our spiritual gifts sort of in the atmosphere of love. In other words, as a human being, right, the body requires, I forget what it was in science, but what, like 79% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, and then like 1% various other gases. We have to survive. This is the atmosphere in which we breathe and live and operate. If you take us out of our atmosphere, what happens? You put us on the moon, what happens? We die, right? Spiritual gifts need to be exercised in an atmosphere of love. You take them out of that atmosphere of love, what happens to the spiritual gifts? They're useless. They're worthless. They're vain. They're nothing. That's the point Paul is going to make in this passage. So there on your outline, you've got four points. Already I can feel Mark Bailey saying, how are you going to get through four points in the time that we have left? (laughs) Faith. The spiritual gift of faith. Exercise faith that I will get through this in the time that we have left. (laughs) First, we're going to look at gifts without love in verses 1 through 3. Again, here Paul speaks. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gifts of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So as we see in this opening passage, again, after telling us that the Spirit distributes the gifts as He desires and that The Father has set us in the body as He wills, as He sees fit. Paul then warns them, and He warns us as well, to not use our gifts without love. Or maybe maybe put that in a better way. To exercise our gifts with love. He warns us against using our gifts without love. Now, where he says here, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I mean, really, the entire passage here, he is speaking in hyperbole. He's using exaggeration. Now, some have looked at verse 1 and seen the tongues of men and of angels and seen that this, this is biblical proof that there is an angelic language, that, the, that there is a tongue of angels. And I can't say whether there is or isn't. I mean, I think Paul is speaking hyperbolic here. In other words, he's saying, look, if I have the gift of tongues dialed up to ten so that I could speak in every tongue of men and even of angels, so Paul is making a point by exaggerating. Um, I don't know if the angels have a, a, I mean, angels have, you know, they're created in a sense like us. They're intelligent creatures, so why wouldn't they have a language? 
Um, but I don't think this is, you can use this to prove that there's an angelic language. But again, some will say that. You know, we, we learn in Romans 8 that the Spirit groans to the Father with words, uh, in words without, you know, that we do not understand. So there's sort of like a communication within the Trinity that, that is beyond human speech and understanding. But I think, again, the point that Paul is making here is like, look, if I have the gift of tongues far more than anybody else, right? If I am sort of like the Michael Jordan of tongue speaking, that I could speak in the tongues of any human language, any angelic language, and if I do not have love, then all of my speaking, all of my, my, my uh, tongue use is going to just sound like noise. It's going to sound like indecipherable noise. Sounding brass or clanging cymbals. I remember for us, our kids, when, we were, when they were growing up, they were in band, right? Now, thankfully, none of our kids took to try to learn a brass instrument, but they did learn woodwinds, okay? Our oldest, he, he played the oboe. Our middle played the clarinet. And if you've ever been with somebody learning a woodwind instrument for the first time, and they have that reed, and they're trying to work that reed, it sounds like a dying goose, okay? And it just makes a, a very obnoxious noise as you're trying to make that noise. And, and that's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's like, look, if I try to speak in tongues without love, I'm going to sound annoying. I'm going to be this, 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 you know, this clanging cymbal or this sounding brass. It's going to sound annoying. It's going to sound like nails on a chalkboard. And then he moves on in verse 2 to prophecy. Notice again, Remember what I said, tongues and prophecy are the two, they're number one and number two in Corinth. They valued tongues above all. They thought that that was the gift that proved that you were a spirit-baptized person. And here Paul deals with tongues first and then next with prophecy. And he says, look, if I have the gift of prophecy so, so that I can understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge, or if I have the gift of faith, so that I have all faith that I can remove mountains, but have not love, what happens? I am nothing. I am nothing. Again, here, if you, he's, he's, being, he's exaggerating, right? If you could understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, what would that make you? God, right? <laughs> right? But he's like, look, if I have the gift of prophecy dialed up to number 10, if I'm a Michael Jordan in prophecy, if I'm Michael Jordan in knowledge or Michael Jordan in faith, but I do not have love, I am nothing. That idea there of faith, this is not the gift of faith, believing faith. This is like the faith that you would exercise that would move you to, uh, that, would, that would sort of motivate you to move out in, in big ways for the faith. Uh, think of the story when, when uh, Jesus is walking on the water and, and Peter says, uh, call me out there so I can join you. And, and Jesus says, if you have faith, just come on out. So Peter starts walking. But then what happens? He, he loses sight of Jesus, looks at the storm, and then starts to sink. And then he says, you have little faith. Okay, if you have the faith here that Paul is talking about, you would just be able to walk on the water just as Peter did right up to Jesus. You would have the faith that would actually move the metaphorical mountains in your life and remove all obstacles. But if you exercise that faith outside of an atmosphere of love, if you exercise the gift of prophecy out of the, out of, outside of an atmosphere of love, if you exercise the gift of knowledge 
outside of an atmosphere of love, you are nothing. And then, just to make sure that he doesn't leave out all the other gifts, he, verse 3 sort of is a catch-all for the, the non, if you will, the non-special gifts that the Corinthians have. The gift of being generous or the gift of, of uh, sacrifice in verse 3. says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Again, if you were so generous, if you were like the rich man in, in the parable that Jesus talks to me, he says, give all you have and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the guy said, absolutely, I'm going to do it right now. And he does it. And, and if he does not exercise love, if he does not do that in, a, in, a, in an attitude of love, it's not going to profit him anything. Or if you're so, you know, so given over to sacrifice that you're, you're out there on the forefront willing to give your body to be burned, but you're not doing it out of love, you're not going to profit anything. Again, spiritual gifts, not being exercised in an atmosphere of love, is... It says nothing, it is nothing, and it profits you nothing. That's what we learn here in um, these first few verses. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Paul doesn't say this just randomly. He says this because that's what's going on in Corinth. They were not exercising their gifts in love. Right? You know, think about, uh, the, what is it, the first letter in Revelation chapter 2 that the angel, that, that, that Jesus tells John to write to the church in Ephesus. And you read through that, and they were a gifted church, right? They, they were a truth-seeking church, right? They, they, you know, they did not tolerate false teaching. And if anybody came in there claiming to be an apostle, claiming to be a prophet, claiming to be a, a teacher of truth, and, and they, they discerned that they weren't, they immediately kicked that person out. They were zealous for the truth. They were... They were very knowledgeable, but what was their, their fatal flaw? They, they had not love. They left their first love. So they were, in a sense, exercising their gifts without love. And Jesus says, look, if you do not return, I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm going to remove your lampstand. You will cease being a church if you do not return back to your first love. If you do not return to using and exercising your gifts in an atmosphere of love. So if love, then, is the atmosphere in which the spiritual gifts are to operate, then what is love? Well, that's what we see in verses 4 through 7, where Paul continues. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, the first thing you should note when you read through that is love is not an emotion. Okay, that's how the world sees love. The world sees love as, you know, the, the Righteous Brothers song, right? You've lost that loving feeling, or it's like a mushy kind of thing, a romantic kind of thing. The word here for love is the Greek word agape. The Greeks had many words for love. We have one word for love. If I were to say, I love my wife, I love my kids, and I love sausage pizza, right? I'm using that word love differently in all three cases. I do not love my wife the same way I love sausage pizza. I do not love sausage pizza the way I love my kids, okay? 
So we can kind of, by context, we can sort of determine how we mean the word love. The Greeks didn't bother with that. They just came up with different words. They had at least four different words that spoke of love. And the word here, agape, is that self-sacrificial love. It is the love that gives of yourself to meet the needs of another. Okay, It's the love that gives of itself to meet the needs of another. And that's the way God loves. That's the way God loves us, right? God so loved the world that he what? He gave of himself. He gave his only begotten son so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. Love here is a verb. Love suffers long. Love is kindly. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. All of these things are actions. Love here is described as an action. You, you either do things or you don't do things based on love. And the list here is you've got several. He starts off with a couple, love is this, and then, starts, then continues on with a bunch of love is not like this, and then finishes off with a few things that love is. Now, every Christian who reads this passage should be convicted. Right? You read through this passage, it ought to convict you. Because is there any one of us here who can say that they love this way in which the Bible loves? Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's replace the word love with your name. All right? Carl suffers long. Carl is kind. Carl does not envy. Carl does not parade himself. He is not puffed up. Carl does not behave rudely. Carl does not seek his own. Carl is not provoked. Carl thinks no evil. Carl does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Carl bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Carl never fails. <laughs> all right? I cannot say that of myself. No one can say that of themselves. Particularly those last few sections there, right? bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now again, I'm going to use my highly developed skills of exegesis and biblical interpretation to tell you that all things means all things. Okay? There's no way around it. It's all things. And when Paul says here, believes all things, he's not talking about you gullibly believe everything. It's that you believe the best Always, about everyone, in every situation. You bear all things. You put up with everything. You endure all things. You hope for the best in everyone. You hope the best for everyone. You suffer long. Patience, endurance. You are kind. You do not parade yourself. You're not arrogant. Now the Corinthians should have read this and see how they should have seen how loveless they were. Because if you read this, And then given the Corinthian context, you will see that Paul is, in a sense, speaking directly at them, saying, look, everything I've talked about in my letter so far, I'm kind of bringing up here, right? Love is not not envious, right? It's not puffed up, right? The the Corinthians were puffed up, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, uh, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. They were arrogant, they were a divisive church, so they envied. They paraded themselves. They, they, they behaved rudely. They, they, they sought their own. Right? And when we looked at how they celebrated the agape feast, 
We notice that you know, the rich people came, brought their food, and ate it. They, they didn't care about others. They, are, they were provoked, right? Uh, they, if they, anybody slighted another person in that church, they didn't even take that problem to the church leadership. They went to the law courts outside of the church and brought their laundry before uh, secular courts. Rejoice in iniquity, 1 Corinthians 5. Right? Paul says there is a case of sexual immorality in your church of which even the Gentiles are ashamed of, and guess what? You are happy about it. You are boasting about it. So they did rejoice in iniquity. They certainly didn't bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, or endure all things. So they should have read this and been convicted to the heart about how they were behaving in their own church. Now, again, you can look at these verses, and really you can summarize these verses as this is a portrait of Jesus, right? It's as if Paul was painting a picture of Jesus, and this is how he painted him. Because whereas I could not read my name in all of these things, you could certainly read Christ's name in all of these things, right? Let's do that again. Let's replace the word love with Jesus. Jesus suffers long. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. He is not provoked. He thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity. He rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. I can get behind that. Right? This is, this is a portrait of Jesus. And, and love, then, in the Christian life is an attempt to be like Christ, right? Isn't that what sanctification is? Sanctification is the process of putting off sin and putting on Christ, right? Romans 8.29 talks about how those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Our, our end product, right? We are the work. We are God's workmanship. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are God's workmanship. We are his little work in progress, and he is the master artist chiseling away at us until at the end of it, when he's finished, we're all going to look like Christ. Not physically. We're going to reflect his image. We're going to be image bearers that reflect the image of Jesus. We are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. Another one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where in the context here, Paul is talking about how Moses, when he was in the presence of God, his face shone. And then, of course, then it, it, it faded once he was away from the presence of God after a while. But then he talks about us. He says, but look, all of us with unveiled faces, in other words, Moses veiled his face so they wouldn't see the fading glory, but all of us with unveiled, unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as we are, as we are appearing on the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And then, of course, another great verse is 1 John 3. 1 John 3, where we find here that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, 
and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So while you can't read through verses 4 through 7 and say, well, that's me, but the idea is that that should be at least the direction of your life as we are being sanctified, as we're being conformed into the image of, of Christ, we should be moving in that direction. All right, let's move on a little quickly now. Um, so verses 8 through 10, gifts fail, love never fails. So love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So that first part of verse 8 where it says love never fails, it's kind of like a hinge. It, it can kind of belong to the previous section, and it kind of leads into the next section. But love never fails. Love never fails because love, as we said, is not only the atmosphere in which the spiritual gifts are to operate. Love is, in a sense, the atmosphere in which the Trinity operates. Love is that bond of perfect union that you have between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son and loves the Spirit with a perfect love. And the same goes for the other, three, other two members in the, in the Trinity. They each love. Love is what permeates their relationships, what undergirds their relationships. It was in love that God sent His Son into the world. It was in love that the Son went into the world to do the will of the Father. It is in love that the Spirit then applies the work of redemption to the lives of those whom God has chosen. And love never fails, then, because God never fails. And we find out in 1 John 4.19 or 4.9, God is love, right? God, now, God has many attributes, and we should never think of the attributes as sort of like slices of God, you know, the big God pie. He's not, part, he's not made up in parts, but that's just for our benefit. But you don't see very often any other attribute that we see that God is that attribute. We learn in Isaiah 6, of course, that God is holy, holy, holy. And here we see that God is love. And, and so in other words, he's, he is so identified with love that you can almost say God is love. And that's why love never fails. That's why love never fails. But the spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts, these things that the Corinthians were so eager to pursue, and, and particularly tongues and prophecy, the spiritual gifts will fail. They will cease. Not fails and they will, they will not succeed, but fails and they will become obsolete. They will become useless at some point. They will, they will cease to function because the spiritual gifts are given for the profit and edification of the church, but in the, in the age to come, when, when, when we leave this age and move into the age to come, the spiritual gifts become meaningless. You don't need them anymore because the church will be perfected. Spiritual gifts are necessary now in this current age because of the limitations of our flesh. Right? We can't, you know, because of the fall, because of the effects of the fall on our, on our bodies and our spirits and so on and so forth, the spiritual gifts are, in a sense, uh, supernatural enablements to help us to, to do the work of the church. But here Paul says, look, they're going to fail. Prophecies will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish away. 
In verse 9 says, look, he talks about this is what we are in this age. In this age, we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, in other words, when, when, we, come in, when we enter into the age to come, when Christ returns, then all these things that are in part will be done away with. They will become useless. The exercise of spiritual gifts will become useless when Christ comes because the perfect has come. Siri. If I need you, I'll call you, okay? <laughs> Anybody have that problem with their, if you have an Apple Watch? It's just like, you know, you say something that sounds like Siri, and then it's like, yes, how can I help you? It's like, shut up. You have that at home with, like, Alexa, too? It's like, you're... <laughs> My kids have an Alexa, and it's like they'll be saying something. All of a sudden, Alexa will start ordering things from Amazon. It's like, look, I didn't order that. Stop. <laughs> Technology. you got to love it. Now, I, in some of the commentaries I was reading, particularly from people who are cessationists from the, uh, from the aspect of the miraculous spiritual gifts, again, when we talk about cessation, we're talking about the gifts primarily of tongues, prophecy, and like other miracle gifts like healings and so on and so forth. And those who argue that they have ceased uh, with the finish and completion of the, um, the apostolic age will say that here in verse 10, that which is perfect has come, refer to that as like the completion of the New Testament canon. So in other words, once you have the Bible, you don't need tongues and prophecy because the perfect has come. The perfect revelation of God's word is here. Tongues and prophecies will have ceased. Now, in a sense, like I said, I'm a cessationist. I like to say I'm more of like, I don't, I don't think those, those miracle gifts are normative for this age. But when I read this, that's not the reading I get. That doesn't seem to be the reading that, that is in the face of the text here. It just seems when I hear the perfect has come, that to me suggests when the age to come has come. When the, 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 we're in this current age, which is uh, characterized by the flesh, which is characterized by sin and the fall, the age to come is characterized by the Spirit, is characterized by perfection, is characterized by eternal life. And when the perfect has come, then we don't need these aids in our work because the perfect has come. The, ch the church has been complete. And then he'll illustrate this point in verses 11 through 13 by saying love is the greatest. Where he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So he illustrates the point that he just made in verses 8 through 10. This idea of how gifts function now, but once the purpose has come, you don't need it by two pictures here. The first one is growing from childhood into adulthood, and the second one is seeing in a mirror versus seeing face to face. And both of these pictures illustrate the principle that of knowing in part versus knowing in full. Seeing dimly versus seeing clearly. So in this age, in this age of the flesh, we are children. We are immature children. We speak as a child. We understand as a child. We think as a child. In the age to come, we are full grown. We think like adults. We behave like adults. We put away childish things. 
Same thing with the idea of the mirror. Now, when you see mirror here, don't think of mirror like we have mirrors, right? Mirrors are, are almost perfect reflections if you're in, in good light. The mirrors they had were sort of like a polished metal, like a, a brass, bronze, or silver. And if you were to look in it, you might be able to make out your features. It would be dimly. You would, you would get a dim reflection of it. So you're, in this age, we kind of see dimly. We see things but not clearly. In the age to come, we will see face to face. We will see more fully. We will see more clearly. And that's the idea. The, the spiritual gifts are necessary because of our weakness, because of our fleshliness, because we are childish and because we see dimly. We need the spiritual gifts to help in the work of the church. But then again, when the, when the, when the age to come has has been manifested, when it's inaugurated, when it begins, we can put those things away. They become obsolete because, as Paul says, look, I know in part now, but in the age to come, I will know as I am known. All right, it's not omniscience, but he's going to know so clearly, it's going to be as if he knows himself and knows things in the way that God knows Paul. He will know as he is known. And then finally, you see here, Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He gives the three great Christian virtues, if you will. Paul likes to use these in his letters in Colossians 1. He talks you know, in his prayers to the, to the congregations there. Um, he says in verse 4, uh, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, he says that again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. These three cardinal virtues of the Christian faith, faith, hope, and love. You know, now all these three abide now, but he says the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Well, A, because love never fails. But when, in the age to come... Are we going to need faith? No. Are we going to need hope? No. Right? We hope now for the age to come. When the age to come now, our hope is realized. Our faith is vindicated in the age to come. Right? We won't need faith. We won't need to walk by faith because in the age to come, we'll be walking by sight. So, but love is what will, will, will advance from this age to the next age. Again, love never fails. Love is the greatest because love is forever. Love is forever. And we will be in the age to come. We will be not only with each other in our perfect glorified bodies, but we'll be in the presence of Christ. And love will be, again, that atmosphere which permeates and resonates with all things. Love is the greatest because faith and hope become unnecessary in the age to come, our faith will be vindicated, our hope will be realized, but love will continue to exist. Now, there, I did finish. Let's take that, naysayers. I like to prop up straw man. I, I, I'm sorry I keep putting you in this mark, but. <laughs> What's that? <Yeah. laughs> but uh, next time. Um, we'll look at chapter 14. I, I want to speak, when we look next time, we're only going to look at the first five verses, and the reason being because I want to speak a little more on tongues and prophecy, because up until this time, I've, 
I've resisted kind of defining them. Um, and we'll spend a little time looking particularly at tongues and prophecy because that's going to take Paul now the rest of his way. Okay, he's, he's laid down his foundation. He's illustrated his foundation. He's spoken about love. And now he's going to actually start talking about prophecy and tongues. And he's going to start drilling down to the problems that are going on in Corinth with these two gifts. And then eventually he will um, give some advice on how to um, be a church that is not only a church of love, but a church that is not a church of confusion as well. So uh, next time we'll look at the first five verses, Lord willing, on the 4th of September. Um, I'll stop here.